Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. My name is Steve Fisher, and I'll be your captain for tonight's flight and I'm ably assisted as always by my co-pilot and co-host Grant McCarran. Uh, Grant, how's that pre-takeoff checklist going? Uh, hang on, I'm still punching it into the FMC. Every time I try it, comes up with a bloody blue screen. I don't know. Let's see, A plus one, minus your age, press that button there. Yep, looks... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, L1, uh, load that. Put it into R4 at... Look! Oh, no, no, don't press that. Good Lord. Oh, sorry. No wonder. Well, that's why I keep getting the Windows blue screen of death on this thing. <laughs> oh, no. A Windows-powered podcast. God help us. Oh, don't go there. Oh, enough of that silliness, folks. We apologise for the delay in getting this episode out. It's uh, been a hectic couple of weeks work-wise for us, and we've uh, kind of struggled to get the time in to be able to um, do any recording, much less any planning. So uh, yeah, we do apologise for that, but uh, we've got, gee whiz, Grant, a heap of stories we can report on this evening. So we've done a quick... Uh, sort through them all and we uh, think we sorted out the best ones so what do you say we kick off with it yeah i think we probably should because there's an awful lot here and we're leaving a lot on the floor as well which is always a shame leaving a topic that we we, we kind of want to discuss but there's just not time so you know maybe one day when everyone's got uh, higher bandwidth and better systems we'll go to the three-hour versions but yeah you know, i can hear you pulling your hair out at having to uh, edit that already yeah <clears throat> missing yes. it there already grand without uh <laughs> going in. all right let's get into it our first story this week is following up on a uh, article we did in episode 15 talking about an engine fire in uh, newcastle from a Jetstar a320 airbus uh, grant what have we got to report on that one yeah back in uh, episode 15 we said that we'd let you know if we heard more because it, it had only just happened so we didn't really have a lot of information on it and that was one where we uh, they said uh, gas in the tailpipe so we were making the obligatory fluffy dice comments but uh yeah <clears throat> yes but uh the indications were that there was some uh, excess fuel in the engine after landing um caught fire ground crew noticed it pilots noticed it did the emergency shutdown and fire drill and uh as a precaution evacuated the aircraft via the slides so an expensive little uh, evacuation there at uh, when you pop those slides out, it costs you a bit. Everyone had to leave their carry-on gear there and do the slide down the chute and then got uh, taken away. So, uh, yeah, nothing too huge. It was mostly a precautionary. Apparently, the fire put itself out. Yeah, there you go. And, um, yeah, there wasn't really a lot of coverage on that, but we tried to uh, just follow up where we could. Uh, still no pictures of that that I could find anywhere. Grant, did you find any pictures online of that? Uh, that's negative. Yeah, which is a little bit disappointing. We'd uh, might have thought that some of the passengers. Uh, well, I was, I was going to say, Grant, maybe some of the passengers could have uh, got some footage of that with their uh, mobile phone cameras. But then again, it says here in the report they had to leave all their uh, cabin baggage on the aircraft and just get off. So uh, yeah, maybe that was a double bonus for Jetstar. Yeah, well, I don't know because my phone is always in my pocket. So you know. Hmm. Mind you, these days, so is the Zoom H2 recording device, so I could have been on the tarmac going, so tell me, how do you feel having slid down the fun slide? Yeah, so you could have recorded yourself jumping in it. Woo! <laughs> I have a T-shirt like that. It uh, has an aircraft floating in the water with everyone going out the slides, and the slides turn into giant uh, clowns. course. <laughs> Yeah, you go through the mouths of the clowns. It's rather amusing. Oh, dear. So anyway, mate, I guess we'll leave that one there. And uh, like I say, just a bit of follow-up on that one. Moving on to another one, which would be uh, potentially bad for one side of the country, but uh, wonderful if you live on the side of the country we do. <laughs> Found in Australian Aviation, of course, our favourite. Uh, totally our favourite magazine. Absolutely. And uh, was reported in quite a number of other sources, but we'll quote from this one. And it says, Victoria launches bid for the Red Bull Air Race. Uh, yeah, now um, talk about a way to upset 
out our, our friends across there in the west. As we know, the uh, Red Bull Air Race is currently is hosted over there in Perth. And, uh, Grant, it looks like it's uh, they've got an agreement to run that event until 2012. Victorian state opposition leader Ted Ballier was promising that if elected, he says with his hands in the air, if elected, I will uh, be going after the Red Bull Air Race so that Melbourne can host it from 2013. Yes, well, uh, Melbourne already has a bit of a bad reputation for having stolen the uh, Formula One race from uh, Adelaide, but to now also get the Red Bull Air Race over here from Perth would uh, be quite interesting. In terms of reactions, I would be very scared to set foot over there. But, hey, you know, how often do I get to Perth? <laughs> i tell you a story about that. The um, I guess the week after the announcement was made uh, that Victoria had taken the uh, Formula One Grand Prix away from uh, South Australia and Adelaide, that just happened to be the week that my uh, then new wife and I <laughs> decided to head off to Adelaide for our honeymoon. And Oops. Um, the rental car people were very nice and obliging in giving us a uh, rental car with Victorian number plates on it. So, uh, yeah, that was a rather interesting time. They had the old Kick a Vic campaign going there. And oh, no. I remember being stopped in the street one time uh, trying to read through the street directory looking for somewhere because, you know, they just don't have any street signs in Adelaide, or they didn't back then. It was rather frustrating <laughs> being used by a number of cyclists going past for being Victorian. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, I'd probably stay away from Perth. It'd be a shame in a way if Perth did lose it because it's a, it's a beautiful city, Perth. Uh, my brother and I were over there for the last Red Bull Air Race about this time last year. However, I'd be quite happy to trade. I think the Formula One Grand Prix is probably... Um, if you'll pardon the pun, run its race here. It's um, getting a bit tired, and yeah, why don't we just give the Formula Ones to the people over in Perth, and uh, yeah, we'll have the air race. That that suits the Playing Crazy Down Under podcast really well. Yeah, I think that would actually be a good swap because uh, let's face it, the F1 doesn't bring any money in anymore, not with everyone leaving it. So uh, yeah, let's go. Let's hey Perth, you can have this, and we'll have that. Even trade, like it. Yeah, in fact, they're not even uh, proposing if they did get it here. They're talking about having holding it down in Geelong, not in Melbourne. So yeah, no, we're gonna have to have a chat with them about that. I mean. You know, Geelong win two premierships in a few years and suddenly they think they're really good and worthy of hosting an air race. Yeah, I mean, do they have an airport down there at Geelong? Uh, Yeah, they do. Oh, that little place called Avalon, that's right. Wow, there's that one too. Oh, there's that one, yes. No, that'd be cool. I mean, Avalon's not that far from Melbourne, for those of you who are not familiar with the area. So, yeah, yeah. And I say, all's all's fair in love and war. Let's do it. I mean, uh, I think probably Ted Bellew's chances of being elected are not great, but... On the off chance they were, uh, yeah, let's let's get let's have a go at getting that race over here. That could be fun. That would lead me into a little spray that I have for the Red Bull Air Race people. Grant, if I can just digress for a minute. Oh, certainly. Do you ha- do you have a soundbite? Yes, Grant. I'd like to have a bit of a rant. The last round of the Red Bull Air Race, which was in uh, Barcelona, was that right? Si, Grant? senor. Grant, you say it so well. Where was it? Se fue a Barcelona. There you go, whatever he said. And, of course, uh, those of us who are devotees of the race decided that we would like to sit up and at least watch the um, live coverage so that we could watch our hero, Matt Hall. We're not worthy! We're not worthy! <laughs> Shall we stuff in the final race of the series? Now, of course, it didn't turn out so well for Matt. In fact, he uh, didn't, uh, unfortunately, didn't, didn't even make it through to the Super 8s. However, we could not watch that because the Channel 10 network here in Australia, who has the rights to broadcast the uh, Red Bull Air Race, saw fit not to broadcast it live. Now, okay, the Grand Prix was on and they also show that, so fair enough. How- Hello, they've got two channels, HD and normal. Hello. And I can even I can even get away with that. Okay, it doesn't have the following of Formula One, but what really annoyed me is when I went to the Red Bull Air Race website and thought, hmm, well, I'll just sit down. It is 1 a.m., but I'm prepared to sit down and watch the race live. I'll just watch the live stream, only to find that it was blocked in Australia due to, and I quote, arrangements with our broadcast partners. Now, Correct. 
that's okay, except, of course, the broadcast partners were not showing it live. So, you know, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, guys, how on earth are we supposed to watch it live? Now, Channel 10 did show it about 36 hours later. <laughs> Gee, they must have had that on the fast track to get it that soon. Yeah, okay, now, I'm a computer geek, Grant, and it took me hmm, almost four minutes to uh, work out a proxy server and get around it, but not everybody knows how to do that. Mm, correct. And I just thought that was a pretty poor effort. I mean, you know, they could have a bit better coordination. You know, they, they want to promote the sport. It's, it's still a relatively new sport, and I think they really ought to have a look at how they're doing it here. They've got an Aussie racing. They've got an event here, and they need to be able to promote that. Even if it was 1 o'clock in the morning, there are a lot of people who would have been sitting up and at least trying to at least watch the live stream on the internet. Yep, no, exactly. I, I did email them about this and yeah. and make... Oh, sorry, were you still mid-round? Sorry, dude. <laughs> well, I know I feel better. Go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did email them about this and they said, sorry, it's just the... Um, if I remember correctly, the response I got was that it's uh, the basis of the... Uh, the contract they have allowing Channel 10 to show it, it's similar for many partners around the world of their TV partners. If the TV partner is allowed to show it, they have, must block everyone from there from seeing it online and whether that, that partner shows it live or not. So hopefully for next year's, they'll actually put a clause in there that they can only block it if the partner is showing it live at the same time. Quite frankly, I think it sucks. And uh, what more can one say but boo Channel 10? No wonder they're going under. Yes, that was me and Grant and several other Air, Red Bull Air Race fans. So, uh, yeah, please, guys, let's let's work this out and have a bit of coordination for next time. Or better still, just steal a race from Perth and host it here in Melbourne. Yeah, then we don't have to go so far. And speaking, of course, of Matt Hall, we do plan to interview Matt and have a bit of a season wrap with uh, him in the next uh, few episodes, hopefully, when we can organise that with his management people. We, uh, they said they're willing to uh, allow us to have yet another talk to Matt, so obviously we haven't scared him off too much. And um, oh, Matt, twice we've tried, but he still comes back. He's he, he's a tough guy, I tell you. That shows you just how tough these Red Bull Air Aces are. They're willing to come back for more with us. Whew. And, of course, uh, next month uh, they have the Show Us Your Wheels event up there in Newmerca in uh, rural Victoria, and uh, Grant and I hope to be there, and Matt Hall will be there for dinner. So at the very least, uh, hopefully we can get that fancy new Zoom H2 recorder, Grant, and uh, have a live interview with him. Cop a live one. That'd be great. Do you think I'd have to carry around my... We're not worthy! We're not worthy! ...sound effect with me everywhere I go? That might be oh. embarrassing for Matt. Maybe we can just get a T-shirt. <laughs> yes, we could. PCDU. We're, worth, we're not worthy. Except when we're around Matt. <laughs> that, well, that could be fun. <laughs> okay, uh, next story. Grant is dealing with our friends over there at V Australia, and uh, there's been a lot of rumours going around about what aircraft they might be purchasing to uh, supplement their uh, relatively small fleet at the moment. And Brett Godfrey, their CEO, has been observed over there in the US talking to Boeing executives lately about presumably a uh, major agreement to buy some uh, quite a, a large number of aircraft for uh, V Australia and Virgin Blue. And uh, the article we have here from Australian Aviation uh, says V Australia set to get 777-200 LRs, question mark, question mark question mark yeah that's that's some uh, that's some great uh jumping all over the place when uh you know, brett godfrey's seen in washington having a chat with boeing and immediately everyone starts talking about triple seven two hundred lrs to supplement the 300 ers they've gotten as um, brett was later commented on i was like jeez they come over here to have a chat with boeing and all of a sudden we're going to do direct non-stop routes between uh, perth and london heathrow and uh sydney and jfk hello and I've got to say, when I first heard the the rumours running around, I, um, I think it was TRW was running around saying that they were, if they got the 200 LRs, they were going to be able to do those routes. And I'm thinking, hello, you'd have to kick off passengers to carry the fuel. Um, they wouldn't be at that. 
I've had one guy say they'd have to be 75% full to be able to make it back against the headwinds. Hmm. So, you know, it's there's been a number of airlines looking at uh, ways to, to go nonstop. And if you remember, Qantas had uh, Oscar, Oscar Juliet Alpha, uh, one of their first 747-400s, did its delivery flight for direct nonstop from London Heathrow all the way to Sydney. And uh, it was flying pretty much empty with just the tech crew almost nothing and no one else on board and pretty much uh, rumor was it came in on vapors and uh, special dispensation to do it so mm. to be able to do perth to london heathrow or uh, sydney to jfk that that even with an lr they'd have to uh, unload and i don't think it would be economical of course uh, v australia is currently operating the triple seven the er version of that aircraft the 300 er yes actually i actually had my information on that back i was actually talking to our friend uh, dan webb recently and i'm going i actually thought that the er for extended range would have the, you know the greater legs but apparently i'm quite wrong in that assumption it's the lr that's got the longer range so uh, there you go you know, they say you learn something new every week and uh, i've at least learnt that one yeah, uh, that is correct. The 300 um, has a longer fuselage and the ER is able to go further for the 300, but uh, it is the 200 LR with the shorter fuselage and the um, much more fuel capacity that, that has those legs to, to do very long flights. I think that's the one that uh, the 200 uh, LR, that's the model that uh, Delta's operating across there on that new uh, service they're operating into Sydney, I think, isn't it? I'm not 100% sure, but you could be right, sir. Mm. I'm, sure, I'm sure Dan will send us a rebuttal if we've got anything wrong. Hi, Dan. Of course, we uh, we do have a, a listener or two that might be uh, really willing to know there. So, uh, hello, Marty, if you're listening, you could let us know all about that. Ah, we have people closer to home, huh? Yeah, we do. Yeah. Excellent. This, uh, the other interesting thing in this article, too, is talking about the Virgin Blue group purchase, uh, which may include up to 50 737 NGs, um, along with the uh, 777 order. I believe, Grant, that a lot of the uh, Virgin Blue's uh, 737 fleet is coming up to uh, end of lease, so uh, they're looking to renew a lot of those. So I'd say that he'd be over there now with uh, the market being uh, probably a buyer's market at the moment for aircraft, with numbers being down and orders being cancelled left, right and centre. It's probably a good time if you've got a bit of cash uh, in your pocket to go shopping for new aircraft. Mm-hmm. And I'd say they could probably get quite the discount on those aircraft. Poor old Brett Godfrey sounded a little bit uh, uh, exasperated. Would that be the word? He was uh, <laughs> yeah. can't even come over here and straight away people are speculating at what I might be buying. But it'd be good to see a few more, a few new uh, Virgin Blue aircraft in the sky. It's always good from a plane spotter's point of view. It's your favourite thing. Oh, who who cares about the economics? Who cares about anything else? I want to see multiple different types of aircraft. Thank you very much. Is there any other reason after all, I ask you? Yeah, well, customer's always right. Yeah, just a little bit more to add there, Grant. Just looking in the uh, current uh, edition on page 90 of Oz Aviation, uh, it says that uh, Brett Godfrey is quoted here as saying that now's the time to look. Yep, yep, that's definitely the case. And it suggested that uh, the new aircraft would replace existing uh, aircraft in the Virgin Blue fleet, noting that many of the current 737 fleet come off lease in a big way and that the airline was not planning on extending those leases. So uh, he said discussions with Boeing on the new orders are taking place now. So there you go, Grant. Always. Is good for plane spotting and uh, yeah there's going to be a lot of defunct 737 airframes coming up in the next couple of years that's for sure yeah well they'll wind up uh, they'll be well maintained as so long as you ignore the nose wheels falling off but i'm sure they'll find a good happy home very quickly it's interesting isn't it brett goes over there to uh, talk about 737s and suddenly the rumor is he's buying 200 lrs uh, twitch what <laughs> uh, and it's, it's very it's very classically indicative of the aviation industry i mean you know i've had all sorts of rumors reported to me that things are coming up and you know Qantas is definitely going to be buying triple sevens oh yeah and uh two hours later oh they've just bought a whole lot of a330s that was a while back but uh yeah 
that was that was fun. <laughs> yeah, of course, Qantas has really trended away from the uh, old Boeing fleet that it used to be. They, they've really uh, been buying from the European manufacturer uh, quite a lot more regularly than they than they used to, or really yeah. going back historically, they didn't at all. But uh, yeah, there's there's quite quite a number of Airbuses in their fleet now. So um, yeah, I'm sure the executive over there at Boeing would be uh, pretty keen to strike whatever deal they could with Qantas too, incidentally. But uh, yeah. well, that is that does give Qantas a lot of a bargaining power, and there was that discussion way back when they turned around and got the A330s and then the A380. 330s, of course, common cockpit, all that kind of stuff with the A380s, easier transition. And yeah, didn't that just help get a massive discount on the next time they bought a whole lot of 7.3s? Yeah, oh, well, you know, now that we've got the A330 and the A380, well, the A320's not that far apart, but, you know, oh, we, we give us a price on the 7.3s and we'll think about it. And of course, they bought 7.3s themselves, but then when uh, JQ was firing up, they that's where they went with the A320s. The other factor too, Grant, with those uh, that last lot of, you know, their initial order of 737-800s, the NGs that they first got, they were a lot of a- aircraft that were actually originally ordered for American Airlines, but they were due for delivery in late 2001. Well, of course, we all know what happened in late 2001 that affected that. They ended up becoming uh, surplus to requirements for uh, American Airlines. And so, um, yeah, those uh, initial 800s, uh, the, the first order of those that came in Qantas colours, um, you know, they, they came, I believe, at a pretty good uh, price for Qantas because basically um, they, they were there painted up in AA colours or, or ready to go and all of a sudden, you know, they weren't going anywhere. So, yeah, that you know, although it was a really tragic circumstance that led to that, it certainly worked out well for Qantas in that way, at least. Indeed. Well, um, okay, hot on the hot on the heels of the uh, information about uh, Virgin Blue taking advantage of the slump in the market to get a good deal on 7.3s, we've found that Air New Zealand has decided to replace their uh, 15 737-300s with 14 Airbus A320s. Uh, now, those 14 will be added to an existing 12, and they're going to be used on Trans-Tasman and Pacific routes. And uh, look, the, the list price for this is just over a billion US dollars, but the word floating around from yeah, reasonably reliable sources is that they could have had a discount of about 50% on that. That's a, a wonderful discount uh, looking here at an article from, you know, one of the most prominent contributors who probably doesn't even know he does in the Australian, of course, Steve Creedy, <laughs> with an article here that uh, says Airbus knocks 50% off uh, a New Zealand deal. So, uh, yeah, uh. saying Airbus here was coy this week about suggestions that it had given Air New Zealand a 50% discount on the US $1.08 billion List price for 14 A320s to seal a deal. Uh, reports mm-hmm. New Zealand quoted Macquarie Equities analysts as saying the Kiwi carrier was likely to have paid just 540 million US dollars for the aircraft. Uh, wow, what a discount! And uh, I wonder how they, uh, if that's true, Grant. I wonder how they managed to uh, leverage such a huge discount. Yeah, well, that's pretty much a buy one, get one free. Um, I guess Airbus were looking at this as a great way to uh, leverage out Boeing from another part of the Pacific, Um, although Air New Zealand are still proceeding with their uh, 787 orders, although I wonder if they will go ahead. I don't know. 787, it's got to fly soon, otherwise the A350 is catching up, even though the A350 is still just in design development, a build type of thing. They don't even have a completed airframe. wouldn't surprise me if Airbus have done this to get the foot in the door and uh, be ready to go for bigger orders. It quotes here the Air New Zealand Group General Manager for Shorthaul, a gentleman by the name of Bruce Parton, uh, he's quoted here as saying the industry is at, a, at the bottom of a deep cycle so demand for aircraft is limited creating favourable conditions for buyers with strong balance sheets like Air New Zealand The manufacturers had huge backlogs and they were like going into the crisis going yeah, it's okay, yeah, orders have dropped off but it's okay, we've still got this backlog, that'll keep us busy, we'll just crunch through the backlog, we'll be fine when it comes out the other side, yeah, no worries 
oh, what do you mean you're all cancelling your orders? And that was the problem. All the, a whole lot of airlines went, well, yeah, we may have this backlog, mate, but uh, <clears throat> we haven't got any money to pay for it, so we're cancelling our orders. Thank you very much. We'll take the uh, slight loss now as opposed to a huge loss bringing that aircraft on, especially as we're about to get rid of a whole lot. And that's the other part of it is you've got a whole lot of relatively low-time aircraft going on to the second-hand market. So that depresses the price of second-hand and in turn new cars, oh, sorry, aircraft. Just going to say we've seen that in the car market. Yeah, it's just seen how well it's working for them. Uh, not yeah. that though, Grant, the A320 is a, a very, very popular aircraft and I would have thought that there still would have been a reasonable demand. There's a, there's a lot of those flying around this region of the world, uh, mm. particularly around, um, you know, Southeast Asia. A lot of carriers are uh, favouring the Airbus product these days. I'd be amazed if it really was 50% and gee whiz, uh, if those executives over there in Air New Zealand can pull that sort of a deal off, then maybe some of the uh, corporate headhunters uh, here in Australia ought to be trying to poach those guys and get them across there and uh, start working for Qantas or uh, Virgin Blue. Well... Dude, are you trying to do a segue to a story we weren't going to discuss? Well, actually, Grant, you know, it's a bit of an unintentional segue, but let's quickly cover that one. Yeah, because this is a classic example of exactly what you were talking about. The uh, aviation executive recruitment crowd headhunting out of Air New Zealand. And uh, apparently Air New Zealand's Chris Nassenstein, or Nassenstein, I'm not sure how, how you like that pronounced. Easy for you to say. Yeah, exactly. Has been tapped for a Qantas post, according to a small article here in Aero News Network. He's going to become the executive general manager of engineering. So uh, that's pretty interesting, given all the engineering changes that are going on at Qantas and how they're uh, bringing engineering back in-house onto uh, and onto Australian soil and how Jetstar are setting up some um, engineering apprentices and so on. And uh, yeah, here, here, comes, uh, excuse me, here comes Chris, most recently with Air New Zealand. And uh, they're going to bring them on for engineering, so it's pretty cool. You know, we were discussing this in the last episode, Grant, and you know, we I wholeheartedly support the move to bring engineering for the airlines back into this country. It was really disgraceful that it was ever moved offshore. Like I said last week, it just looks bad of aircraft. You know, let, let's yep. talk about um, differences in standards because that's certainly not an, an area of expertise for me. But you know, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence around to suggest that uh, the standards were certainly not as high from the uh, overseas contractors as uh, they were here in Australia. So. Yeah, uh, you know, very supportive of the move. So, uh, yeah, if, if this gentleman is taking up that post, he's certainly picking a good time to do it. Yeah, well, he's come from Air Canada, Air Transat, Land Chile, and Canadian Airlines, uh, most recently, of course, from Air New Zealand. And uh, he's going to start his new role in February. The interesting part here is that uh, Qantas are all excited because he's uh, bringing the uh, external experience and a global perspective to the position. They were looking for a candidate with uh, strong leadership abilities and the te- technical acumen to move Qantas's engineering and maintenance strategy forward. So it will be interesting to see how this one develops. Well, I hope he doesn't have those um, you know, engineering staff stripping down and getting done in body paint that seems to be a you know a real theme going over there in new zealand at the moment dude i've seen some engineers that work on aircraft and uh no let's hope not let's certainly hope not <laughs> with all due respect <laughs> the guys are amazing engineers they do incredible work keep the duds on dudes that's exactly right Okay, Grant, uh, the next story we're going to talk about here is dealing with uh, firefighting aircraft uh, for Victoria for this year's fire season. Now, we reported last week that the Victorian government had allegedly uh, rejected an offer from the Russian government during uh, February's Black Saturday bushfires, the really disastrous bushfires that marched their way across uh, Victoria, and it was a really horrible time, as we reported last week. Now, the reasons that they gave, of course, was that, you know, uh, those aircraft wouldn't have been appropriate, and they do the wrong type of firefighting, and we know it's really dangerous. 
dangerous to operate those sorts of aircraft at low yeah. altitude and, and basically, you know, covering their backside exercise, of course. Now, God forbid the politicians could ever be honest. There's a number of really valid reasons why those aircraft, as we discussed last week, couldn't couldn't just come over here at short notice. And so the government were basically telling us uh, in the last couple of weeks that these, this sort of aircraft was not appropriate to use in Victoria. Well, lo and behold, this week, November 7, we find a number of articles popping up, uh, particularly this one here I'm looking at from theage.com.au, saying that Victoria will now consider leasing a DC-10 or a 747 capable of dumping huge amounts of uh, retardant and water on uh, bushfires for this year's fire season. Well, uh, gee, what a difference a week makes, Grant. Yeah, one week in politics can be a lifetime for others, and wouldn't it be great for some media person in the media to go and find the, the uh, political pe- type people and all that who are saying how bad these kind of delivery mechanisms are for a large, tall forest like we have here in Australia as compared to the scrub kind of fires that were being experienced in the US and um, say, okay, so you were saying this then and now suddenly we're getting these aircraft. In the uh, immortal words of the crazy lady from up north, Please explain. That's exactly right, and I'd, I'd like to know what the uh, why they why do they now consider that it's a uh, an appropriate way to fight fires or to at least uh, assist in a major way in fighting fires? Which you know, um, yes, that would be a, a great idea. Uh, why now do they consider it a good idea when two weeks ago they didn't think it was a good idea? You know, uh, did they hire different spin doctors in the intervening two weeks? Uh, of course, we uh, we can use all the help that we can get. These sort of aircraft are not going to be you know the uh, the silver bullet that's you know. Know, the, the magic solution to any of our problems, but they are, would be immensely helpful in uh, assisting firefighters on the ground to uh, control large fires. You know, obviously, the more of the wet stuff that you can put on the hot stuff, as they say, <laughs> uh, the better off we are. Of course, those aircraft uh, would be a good idea. And, you know, let's get that set up now. It's saying here, interestingly, Grant, that the aircraft won't be coming online until January. Now, as we're talking uh, now, we're recording this in uh, mid-November, and already here in Victoria, we're starting, we've just had a week of uh, quite warm weather in the mid 30s Celsius. That's among that's among the hottest days of November that we've ever had. Yeah. Yeah, which does sort of point to a uh, you know a pretty dry and hot uh, and protracted fire season coming up. So yeah, I don't know January. They're saying January until late March. Mm, I'd be getting those things if we could. I'd be uh, thinking of getting them over here a lot sooner than that. I'd definitely be wanting to get them in early because uh, last time, yes, it was February uh, last time that it all happened. But uh, that January was pretty hot as well. It was just a miracle it didn't flash up earlier. So hmm, see how it goes. See so a report here uh, also covering this story that appeared on the ABC News website. Uh, you know, with the headline saying the water bomber could have saved lives. Um, I would caution people listening, as I said before, uh, into saying that, you know, if these aircraft come here, I, I would caution people against thinking this is going to solve all our problems. It's not. If we're going to get a huge fire, the, the, the type of fire that we saw in the last fire season, I personally would be surprised if we would. They have done a lot more fuel reduction burning, which, you know, frankly, just diverging away from aviation for a second. If they'd been doing that in the intervening five years beforehand, um, we wouldn't probably have had the ferocity of fires that we had in the last season. However, now that these aircraft are here or are proposed to be coming, yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, no, it is a good thing to have them. But uh, let's face it, the around the time of the Black Black Saturday fires, it was so turbulent and the visibility was disgustingly bad. Uh, would you have been wanting to fly a DC-10 or 747 a thousand feet above the hills? No, no. That's the other thing. Um and that's why the maintenance on these aircraft would have to be so intensive. Um, they're talking about, I think they were talking about spending about $10 million just on yeah. getting one aircraft here, for example, for all the fire season. So, you know, a lot of that would obviously be to cover the cost of uh, servicing the aircraft when they're, they're sucking in a lot of garbage 
out of the atmosphere. There's a lot of particulate matter. Uh, well, it was it was well over 40 degrees. There was rolling turbulence, strong gusting northerlies. Most of the aircraft, helicopters, etc., were all grounded, and uh, no one could fly. You couldn't see anything because there was all the crud in the air as well. So, yeah, you know, it, look, that it was that, very interesting. That was that was horrible. You, you've got to think of the. There's a number of factors that played into that the, the Black Saturday fires, not the least of which was the massive fuel load built up over years of um, you know ridiculous adhering to green policies. I'll just <laughs> hold my little political <laughs> on one side. Um, if you're going to live up there, folks, you know we do have to uh, burn off occasionally. You know, uh, yeah. not only that, the the atmospheric conditions, the temperature, you know, the um, the extraordinarily low humidity that we had around that time. Um, yep. And, you know, add to that the really high northerly winds that were coming through. Uh, it was a disaster. That was just one of those things. It doesn't happen all that often. But uh, like I said last week, nothing would have stopped those fires. We might have been able to reduce the severity of them, but nothing would have stopped them completely back on uh, February 7. There's no doubt about that. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's sort of moving away from the aviation side of it. But, yeah, great to see those aircraft coming. And, um, yeah, let's get them here quickly. Yes, indeed. And uh, moving right along to something completely different here. Not talking super tankers, not talking fires, although there could have been lots of sparks. We're talking about uh, a couple of pilots on approach into Sydney in a Qantas 767 who forgot to put the landing gear down. They were apparently uh, just above 400 feet above the ground when they realized, started the go around. They got lower than 400 feet before they, uh, they started climbing out and going around to land again. Would that have must have triggered a uh, ground proximity warning? Surely. The what is it? Enhanced ground proximity warning system. The EGPWS was going berserk um, just after they, they it triggered off just after they'd realised what happened. They they initiated go around. The um, EGPWS went nuts and. Uh, Away they went. We're looking here at a number of articles that we found. Obviously, that got a fair run in the press. Uh, November the 4th, uh, the one I'll look at here is, uh, again, from ABC News, saying uh, that the Qantas pilots forgot to lower their landing gear and says an air safety investigation has been launched after a Qantas jet made its approach to land at the nation's busiest airport without deploying its landing gear. The pilots apparently noticed their oversight less than 300 metres above the deck. The airline has stood the two pilots down pending an investigation. Uh, the aircraft involved was a 767 on a morning flight from uh, Melbourne as it came into land at uh, Sydney Airport last Monday. So, gee whiz, what do you say about that, Grant? Um, everyone can make mistakes. That's that's a heck of a mistake to make. And um, yeah, I guess the uh, the only good news about that was at least they uh, realised it and did the old toga, I guess, and went around and another, had another shot at it. Yeah, well, at least they didn't land on the taxiway or overshoot the whole airport or, um, you know, turn up drunk. Yeah, there's there's all sorts of things going on in the cockpits lately, and um, over here they're definitely going to get in a bit of trouble for that one. But uh, a bit of discipline, a bit of retraining, and they'll probably be back on the line again and very much the wiser. Quotes here that the president of the Australian and International uh, Pilots Association that represents Qantas flight crews, a gentleman by the name of uh, Captain Barry Jackson, says that coming into land is when pilots are at their busiest. He says you're dealing with air traffic, you're dealing with the slowing the aircraft down, configuration changes, changing frequencies, and all those things. Um, yes. And, well, that's your job, guys. That's what you pay the big bucks for. I mean, it's extraordinarily difficult to become a Qantas pilot and get through all that interview process and, um, you know. Training and verification and recurrency and high standards and so on. And, yeah, landing is, it was it was basically a slip up in the CRM. And I mean, I, I understand Barry Jackson coming out to support his members. That's his job. But really, I mean, you know, what he's saying there is he's trying to say that as if it's some sort of an excuse. Well, no, it's not really. That's really just a job description as far as I'm concerned. Those guys, uh, that should not have happened. 
happened. And uh, obviously, uh, nobody can really make any comment publicly on on uh, what the you know what's going to happen with those guys because uh, the incident is still uh, under investigation. But uh, hopefully, it won't be covered up at the end. And uh, but it's, it could be just one of those scenarios a couple of holes in the swiss cheese aligned but fortunately there was a blockage so it didn't line all the way up to crash you know yeah of course this has come in a week where we've uh, you know the media has been flooded with stories about the uh, the crew over there in the u.s that uh, overshot minneapolis by several hundred miles yeah so yeah, that's sort of been grabbing all the media headlines but uh, had that not happened i'm sure this one probably would have got a bit more uh, wide coverage yeah totally uh, <laughs> oh look it's it's been a very interesting time for uh, professionalism in the cockpit and um as uh, Randy Babbitt has, I believe it was, who's the, the new FAA administrator, has said you can't legislate professionalism. Mm. Uh, it's just a matter of training and reminding and um, finding what happens and looking at ways to improve the training and, and people's attitudes and mindsets. I, one thing I haven't found out is about that 767, was it the re- a red eye coming in? Was it a, um, a flight where the crew had been flying for ages and what have they been doing in the previous 24 hours? Yeah, well, this one's a uh, City Fly Service grant. Uh, it's a uh, Monday morning service, uh, Melbourne, Sydney. So certainly not a red eye, yeah, but like yeah. Say, uh, what were those guys? Were they, well, had they been doing before that? It's not a red eye, but yeah, exactly. Uh, it's not uncommon for pilots to come off a red eye out of Perth, jump onto a plane and fly up to Sydney to get back to base. And they haven't had a lot of, you know, officially had some sleep the day before, but they went to Perth the day before, had a sleep, jumped on red eye, brought it back. You're blowing your circadian rhythms, you know. Yeah. Very interesting. Anyway, I mean, there's speculation around that these uh, these pilots will perhaps lose their licenses and all that sort of stuff. I think that's probably a little bit premature. To, I don't know how anybody could be speculating that. You know, there's 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 all sorts of investigations that need to go on before any sort of uh, of, of unhelpful speculation like that goes on. Ah, uh, but hey, dude, we're pilots. Uh, you know, aviation nuts. We love to speculate. Uh, all you got to do is. I'm jump not speculating. Onto... I'm just reading what <laughs> what I've read. Yeah, but but in general, you find that a lot of people. I mean, look at Prune, uh, professional pilots rumor and underground network uh pprune.org if anyone out there is listening to this and doesn't know about it they should get onto that site and just lurk if you're not a pilot and you're not experienced in what they're talking about don't comment unless you're asking for questions for learning just get on there and watch and it's quite fascinating Uh, it's it's proof that pilots to put it bluntly bitch and moan just as much as a bunch of old ladies watching the guillotine. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, CASA, the Civil Aviation and Safety Authority here, uh, produce a quarterly magazine with all sorts of reports on uh, incidents and uh, investigations and stuff like that. Now, the uh, most recent edition of that magazine has only just arrived in my mailbox this week, so uh, it'll probably, I don't know, probably maybe the next issue or probably even the issue after that. We've probably yeah. six months down the track, would you reckon, Grant, before we uh, you know get a, a report on what's happened here? Well, if you're talking about the dead tree version, yeah, but I'm sure we're going to find more from the ATSB website. But yes, I am actually holding said magazine in my hot little hand right now. It has a great photo of uh, James Morrison, the trumpet player, uh, standing next to his plane. So, uh, yeah, all good. Coming up after the break, Qantas, part of the Jetstar Group. Alan Joyce says no. We have our This Week in Aviation History segment, and Owen's up drops in to announce the winner of our book giveaway. Don't switch that iPod off, folks. We'll be right back.
Looking for a studio to record your next project? From recording and song production to music videos, disc duplication, and DVD presentation kits designed to get you noticed. Audiovisual Media is more than just a recording studio. It's a complete solution for musicians with recording and music video packages available. Record your next project at Audiovisual Media and score free studio time. To find out how, visit our website at www.audiovisualmedia.com.au or call us on 0407091524. If you can't get enough of AirplaneGeeks.com, try Playing Crazy Down Under. And then come back and listen to AirplaneGeeks.com again. Have you seen an aviation news article from the Australia Pacific region? Then why not email it to us or better yet, record your own voice and send it to playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. And welcome back, folks. Now, back in episode 13, we had a wonderful interview with uh, Owens Up, and uh, he was talking about his journey through aviation, and uh, we went right through and talked about his uh, career and the project that he's got going where he's going to be flying around uh, the nation uh, next year to celebrate the centenary of powered flight. And uh, listeners might also remember that we were conducting a bit of a giveaway where we were going to um, take some suggestions for some places that Owen might like to stop along the way, along his journey, and um, we were going to give away a copy of Owen's book which is called Down to Earth. So uh, we'll officially announce on the 11th of November 2009 just for anybody who might be listening a bit later on that the uh, giveaway all the entries are now closed and Owen joins us on the line from up there in New South Wales and we're going to draw the winner. G'day Owen. G'day how are you going? Not too bad not too bad. Yeah good to have you back with us Owen. Yeah it's good to be here guys. Great to catch up again. Okay, so uh, we've come up with a bit of a short list, haven't we, mate? Um, we might just go through. We had uh, quite a number of entries, but uh, we've we've shortlisted it down to three. Yeah, that's right. We uh, there was lots of arguments and discussions, and uh, and Owen sort of trumped us a couple of times, but uh, we've got it down to the three. Now, the first one in the list here is unfortunately unable to be part of the uh, consideration for a, a winner's prize because it's from Baz and. Uh, Unfortunately, Baz has had the misfortune of being on our show a few times and is a contributor to the show. So uh, I don't believe that uh, staff of the uh, of the event organizer or their friends are allowed to enter. Is that the usual run that we do, guys? Oh, sounds sounds very official to me. Sounds like a very <laughs> fine print point there. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell I've read these a few times and worked in <laughs> um, in promo giveaway kind of environments. Uh, you're the man, mate. You're the pro. <laughs> <laughs> pro loony. Yeah. Now, Baz came up with a great suggestion, which was to go to Broken Hill. He was suggesting in the Adelaide Mount Gambier area of Stage 9 of uh, the current route around Australia that uh, Owen should go via Broken Hill as it's a major Royal Flying Doctors service base and a museum. And it was made famous worldwide by the Flying Doctors TV show. So uh, that was a pretty good suggestion, wasn't it, guys? Yeah, yeah, that was a good one, Grant. I um, must admit I haven't ruled that out as yet. The main reason it wasn't included from the outset, given the significance of Broken Hill, was was just the the dog leg in the um, the route planning stage. But it, I must admit, Braz's suggestion has has made me have another look at that. So don't be surprised if you see the website change to have a little bit of a an angular route that does take Broken Hill in, because it is one that I would dearly love to include in the route uh, at this stage. It's just with some of the commitments and that the logistics of getting there, as there are a number of points around Australia, just makes it a bit awkward. But I haven't ruled that one out yet. It was a, a good suggestion. In fact, it bordered on mind reading, I have to say. There you go, Baz. You're in the groove. Don't let that go to your head, though, Baz, whatever you do. <laughs> 
You don't have to say that he's a mind reader. He only already knew it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll take that one out in post anyway, Grant. Yeah. <laughs> we'll let <laughs> we'll let the Dutch figure that one out. Dutch to Dutch communication. Yeah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Okay, what was the next one we had there on the list? Next one was from Jack Seymour, and uh, Jack lives out in the Wangaratta area, and uh, he's just about to start uh, learning to fly. He wants to learn to fly, and he, I believe he's about to do his uh, trial flight if he hasn't already done it. Uh, so come on, Jack, get yourself into the air, save your money, do what you've got to do to wash your aircraft. Or, Absolutely. You know, with, I, know, I know people, um, one lady who's currently a chief pilot, jump pilot with uh, a, a, sorry, a parachuting group here, and she worked in an abattoir for a while uh, to make money. So, you know, that's pretty full-on place to work. So uh, whatever it takes, you make the money to do the flying. But uh, Jack came up with a really good idea as well. And uh, he suggested that Owen should visit Wangaratta because Wangaratta in Victoria was home to Airworld, which had restored aircraft, put them on show to the general public and was very popular. But unfortunately, it was, it was closed uh, by the council, uh, sold off the aircraft. It's now occupied by Precision Aerospace. Uh, I was actually there a few weekends ago uh, when we parked, uh, landed and parked the DC-3 in front and had a quick look through. It's a very impressive hangar to go through, lots of uh, P-40s under restoration and so on. But yeah, he's suggesting that... Uh, Having Owen come through Wangaratta could highlight uh, the history of the um, of the airstrip and what's going on there and um, and what uh, Precision Aerospace are doing, and that uh, this could help uh, revitalise the Wangaratta environment. Yeah, and Jack's actually sent us uh, quite a number of emails, hasn't he, Grant, on the uh, Plane Crazy Down Under email address? Yep, and uh, he's put a few comments up on the on the website as well. So uh, good to see he's uh, he's tagging along here and getting into it. So great to see uh, Jack, and um, if you're uh, just embarking on your journey in aviation, then uh, stick around a bit later in the podcast. We're going to read out some listener email, which will uh, really interest you. Yeah, definitely. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, Jack's suggestion was pretty good. But Owen, what do you, you think of that one? Yeah, no, Wangaratta is another one. I um, used to go through there, not infrequently taking student pilots down to Victoria from uh, Sydney in my earlier days, and also Drags Airworld, which is... Uh, the air world he's referring to no doubt I, I visited that a number of times it was a, a classic collection there and the work that precision and aerospace do by all accounts now is a is really quality work they're sought after to do it so it, it does play a significant role in aviation and much like broken hill although it's not actually a dog leg i haven't ruled out that i might transit wangaratta on the way through so it was a good suggestion and it had had slipped under the radar to a degree mainly because of drugs being closed down but um yeah i thought it was a great suggestion one that i'm definitely considering but uh i'd like to encourage him particularly being a young fellow coming through both the industry and also listening to playing crazy and putting the entry and that's that's great to hear from from some of the younger folks yeah no, it's pretty awesome and um one of the uh, messages that Jack did send us uh, was he'd like to help raise money for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And, uh, you know, there's a, it's, as I said in my reply, it's, it's, there's going to be a lot of people who say, oh, it's too hard, oh, da, 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 negative, wipe them. But uh, suggest he definitely jump in with the guys at the, uh, at the Aero Club there and maybe also get to meet the Precision guys and ask them. But uh, definitely, if, if you're going through Wangaratta, you should tie what he's doing in with what you're doing so to help boost the uh, input. But, yeah, uh, that's yeah. It. Right, and the fact that he's got that positive attitude and going for it—that's that really augurs well for him entering aviation. Really, great stuff. Yeah, he's crazy enough to be one of us. <laughs> <laughs> yep. With us, Jack. Um, okay, we ready? Will we roll? Do the do the big drum roll, guys, for the winner. Go ahead. Uh, Go for it. it. And the winner is <laughs> the the uh, one that came up with the suggestion that was just blew us all away, and Owen really liked was uh, uh, Bernard Bernoulli. Um, we'll 
call that a nom de plume, shall we? It's the folks from uh, Junior Flyer, the uh, Junior Flyer website, came in and suggested that uh, during the Sydney stopover, Owen uh, should should fly from Penrith to Parramatta at 3,000 feet, then back to Sydney to commemorate William Hart, the first Australian pilot who flew in that area. So, Owen, do you have some background for that? Yeah, yeah. Um, William Hart, actually, I remember being a schoolboy growing up near Parramatta visiting um, uh, where there was a plaque or a memorial, I vaguely remember, because <laughs> I was about eight years of age, commemorating that flight, and I had to go back and write a, a school project on it. So it ties in with my history as well as the aviation history, and that's probably what struck my attention, first of all. Secondly, the, the ease at which I could incorporate that little sector from Penrith to Parramatta. The 3,000-foot might um, involve uh, controlled airspace, that's the only thing, but the, um, the sector of Penrith to Parramatta, anyway, I think should be fairly easy to manage into the, the routing of the flight. So uh, I, I thought it was a, a great suggestion. It was a, a significant point. He was actually a dentist by trade, and I think he bought a Bristol box kite or something off someone who'd imported it and, and flew that, that sector. A lot of the people have, have quoted it to be the first... Um, flight but that's often been misleading i believe he was the first licensed australian pilot and it occurred in 1912 from my recollections but either way it was a significant pointed australian aviation history and one that uh, i could easily incorporate into this flight and is worth commemorating so uh william hart i think is the winner cool so uh the crowd goes wild that's that's i tell you what guys we got all the sound effects here I tell you, definitely. I'll sling an email out to uh, Bernard, who's over at juniorflyer.com. Folks, if you ever get the chance, go to juniorflyer.com. It's a, it's a great site. There's some uh, a lot of good stuff on there that you can uh, download, print out, and uh, use to keep the kiddies occupied when you're flying. It's, of course, all aviation-related, but uh, finder words, stories, uh, drawings, colouring ins, all sorts of stuff there, uh, all free for the taking, um, all aviation-themed. It's really cool. That's juniorflyer.com. Yeah. Excellent. So thanks to everybody who uh, participated in that, that little giveaway that we had. It was only a short promotion, but uh, we, we really hope that uh, the main idea was, of course, was to uh, drive traffic to Owen's website, which is uh, www.thereandback.com.au. And um, yeah, they can have a look at what Owen's doing there and uh, obviously click on the link there and get over to the Royal Flying Doctor Service and hopefully leave a bit of a uh, donation there for the RFDS, which they can always use. Yes, yeah, certainly. They um, just changed the website recently for the Flying Doctor, I, I believe it upgraded, and so the, the donation page all automatically linked with the new donation page there for RFDS, so a very worthy cause. Cool. Well, thanks very much, Owen. Uh, I really appreciate the fact that you have taken your time out to uh, be with us on that first go, which became two goes when we uh, <laughs> came back for that last bit, and now three. Yeah, mate, you're definitely masochistic enough to hang with us. That's great. But uh, we really appreciate it and, and definitely appreciate the fact that you've put that book up and signed it. As, as our first ever competition entry. So thank you so much for that, mate. We really no, worries, no worries at all. Uh, I think what you're doing is great, and the, the more aviators in the country that can get on site and um, support you guys, I think it's fantastic. It's the new medium, obviously, the internet. It's one I'm slowly coming to grips with. So um, <laughs> I, I think you're doing a great job, and I hope your numbers sort of are reflecting that as they're picking up each time. They're, they're gradually growing, so uh, we're very happy. But it's you know we, we're we're trying to create a, a bit of an online community here, so it's it's not just about us. It's it's about uh, promoting Australian aviation in general and and um, getting a bit of a, like we say, a community going. So it's for everybody to, to participate in and having people like yourself coming on the show, that's uh, that's just a real bonus and a real thrill for us. So, uh, yeah, once again, we really appreciate it. No worries at all. No worries. Excellent. Thanks, Owen. Okay. Okay, thank you. 
This Week in Aviation History, Australia Edition, with David Vanderhoof. Good day, Grant, Steve, and our PCDU listeners. I'm sorry I haven't recorded in what seems ages. I'm finally coming out of the flu which I had been battling. I will say I have enjoyed immensely all the adventures you are having this spring, but enough chit-chat. Let's get started. Welcome to This Week Down Under in Aviation, Volume 1, Episode 4, October 18th through November 8th, Playing Catch-Up. October 27th, 1928, Klondike, Niederschle, Luxfart, Marskapag, DC-2, Reichstuf, or homing pigeon in English, departs Batavia, now Jakarta, for Amsterdam on the first return flight of its regularly scheduled service. The trip of 8,700 miles, or 14,000 kilometers, was until 1940 the world's longest scheduled air route. In 1945, KLM absorbed KNILM. The next one is for Grant. November 10th, 1981, Ben Abruzio, Larry Newman, Ron Clark, Rocky Aoki are the first men to fly a hot air balloon across the Pacific Ocean. It was launched in Nagashima, Japan, and landed in California 84 hours and 31 minutes later. Newman and Bruzio became famous flying the Double Eagle 2 across the Atlantic earlier in 1978. The Double Eagle 5 flew a distance of 8,382.54 kilometers. And believe it or not, I found a website with an organization looking to break the record. Uh, you might want to look up www. PacificBalloon.com and uh, they are looking to see if they can break the speed record. It's kind of amazing that someone is trying to break a speed record in a hot air balloon. Okay, next. In 1919, the Commonwealth Government of Australia offered a £10,000 prize to any Australian to fly an aeroplane from England to Australia in less than 720 hours. Brothers Keith and Ross McPherson Smith took the challenge. The McPherson Smith brothers, with their two engineers, Wally Shearer and James Bennett, took off from Hunslow in West London on November 12, 1919. The two pilots and engineers flew a Vickers Vimy IV bomber, World War I bomber, the bomber's call sign was Gulf Echo Alpha Oscar Uniform. The flight took 123 hours, ending in Darwin on 10 December. The flight was 17,911 kilometers. For their flight, both brothers were knighted. I would like to note there seems to be some confusion if their names were McPherson Smith or just Smith. I'd love to have someone clarify that for this author. I took McPherson Smith because some of my lineage are McPhersons. Well, that about wraps it up, guys. I need to start to get ready for that more local podcast that I write for up here. Until next time, this is David Vanderhoof. Up north, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please email me at airplanegeekhistorian at gmail.com or check out my blog at www.whatjustflewby.blogspot.com. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. And another fantastic aviation history report there from our friend David Vanderhoof over there in uh, Philadelphia. Is that where Philadelphia is? It's somewhere there. He's, he's right near Philly Airport. In fact, you know, Grant, on our next PCDU tour of the United States, I think we should stay, you know, for several weeks at David Vanderhoof's place and um, just watch the planes coming in and out of that airport. We just need we just need to time the climate right, so it's good to be sitting on the deck chairs right under the flight path, just leaning back and enjoying the view. Now, folks, uh, of course, David did have a question there. He wants to know about the brothers, uh, about their surnames. Was it McPherson or McPherson Smith? Uh, I've got no idea, Grant. Do you have any idea about that? 
Uh, I know them as the Smith brothers, and I have heard McPherson Smith, and note McPherson, not McPherson. That's the pronunciation that's used down here. It could be wrong, but uh, most of the time I hear them as referred to as the Smith brothers. Yeah, and of course, folks, if uh, you haven't already listened to episode number 14 of Playing Crazy Down Under, yeah, go back and have a listen to that one if you'd like to hear about a uh, really cool reenactment of the, the air race that David described there. Um Yes, that's right. Uh, Lang Kidby, he's an Australian uh, adventurer. He and a bunch of, uh, of well, a team of uh, engineers and uh, mad people uh, built a Vickers Vimy replica, got it to the US, got it all set up in the US, took it across to England. And how they got it to the US and to England is just an amazing story. And then they flew it from England all the way to Australia to reenact the race. And he spends about an hour and a half and he tells us some amazing tales of that Vimy getting it built, getting it ready, getting it to the UK and uh, flying it back to Australia. And uh, also a little bit about his experiences flying an Avro Avian to reenact Bert Hinkler's famous flight from uh, the UK to Australia a, uh, in a single seat biplane. Yeah, so if you're new to the podcast, folks, and perhaps you're listening to uh, this episode for the first time, and you, if you really, it's a really fascinating speech. Uh, we recorded it live at the uh, Moorabbin Air Museum about three weekends ago, and it's about a one hour speech that uh, Lang Kidby made. So, yeah, if you haven't already heard it, uh, certainly pop back when you get a chance into episode number 14 of the show and uh, have a listen. Yeah, really well worth it. And if anybody can uh, offer us, ourselves or David uh, any further information on that, his email address once again is airplanegeekhistorian at gmail.com and uh, David uh, also operates his really good blog which is whatjustflewby.blogspot.com check it out over there David does a fantastic job for us every week and we really do appreciate it dang straight thanks David now Grant moving on talking about uh, our friends at Qantas now you may have noticed that uh, Grant and I have been recently referring to Qantas a Jetstar group airline well yeah <laughs> Grant, I didn't know that uh, Alan Joyce, CEO of Qantas, must be an avid listener because he's come out uh, with an article that we found in The Age this week saying Qantas will not be Jetstarized, according to Alan Joyce. Uh, gee, Grant, I didn't know Plane Crazy Down, Down Under had such a high reach. Mate, we're, we're getting into all levels of aviation here in Australia and people are starting to listen and to pay attention. Tiger's started improving its act. There's been now QF are starting to go, hey, 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 they're, talk- they're calling us the Jetstar Group. We're not allowing that to happen. <laughs> but uh, as Dan found out when he did a little bit of searching, uh, Qantas only flies 34% of its routes with mainland aircraft. Main, sorry, mainline aircraft. All the other routes are flown by Jetstar and uh, Qantas Link and so on. So, hmm, sounds like they're already pretty Jetstarized to me. Yeah, well, I find it encouraging. I, I, I wouldn't like to see the Qantas brand disappear. I mean, you know, Jetstar has been great for the industry and, uh, you know, getting more people flying and getting more aircraft in the air and making it much better for plane spotters <coughs> to f- Anyway, what was I saying? Oh, yes, Qantas. So this article uh, says the low-cost carrier will no longer be used to replace Qantas flights. This is an article by Clive Dorman. Uh, Qantas will go head-to-head on the London route against low-cost carrier AirAsia X without a competitive response from its own low-cost subsidiary Jetstar. And there are doubts over plans by Jetstar to eventually provide a low-cost service to the US to complement the Qantas full-service offering. That's very interesting. Grant, I'm pretty sure Jetstar fly at least as far as uh, Honolulu. Is that right? They were. I'm not sure if they still are. They are doing Asia, and I think they're doing Honolulu. That um, Actually, yeah, I'm pretty sure you're right. I think... When we flew to Honolulu a few years back, we got one of the last Qantas mainline aircraft to fly it. Because mm. actually, if they, if we, uh, <clears throat> sorry, Jetstar, but if uh, if it had been a choice between the only 
Australian airline was Jetstar or some other other airline, we would have gone somewhere else. Uh, we're not really keen on Jetstar, but that's just my family. <laughs> so uh, it says here, um, just looking a bit further down the article, that uh, in an interview leading up to last week's uh, rather rowdy Qantas annual meeting, well, yeah. that, share, that was the shareholders meeting, I think, wasn't it, Grant? That was yeah. yeah, the uh, Qantas annual meeting probably wasn't quite so rowdy. Uh, Chief Executive Alan Joyce moved to allay fears amongst the company's 35,000 employees that the national carrier would continue to be jet-starized to further lower costs as the group faces unprecedented price competition on its key international routes. Those fears were heightened recently when Jetstar began up to five return flights a day between Sydney and Melbourne's Tullamarine Airport, which is significant, actually. Yeah, very significant. And running in direct competition to Qantas's high-frequency city fly service run by the mainline. So, yeah, that is interesting. In fact, Dan Webb asked me recently recently and it's, it's something we probably need to do a bit more research on um, Grant as I understand it they operate sort of hand in hand Qantas and Jetstar at the moment but uh, at least in this example they're actually competing against each other directly um, Jetstar flights between uh, Victoria and Sydney have uh, up until now been running from Avalon yeah they're still running the Avalon service of course that being a uh, good location for people in the Geelong and uh, western suburbs of Melbourne but uh, now Tigers started uh, putting aircraft into the Melbourne Sydney route Qantas had to compete somehow, and uh, they did that by uh, dropping Jetstar in because Qantas Mainline can't really compete with Tiger, but uh, Jetstar can, so in they came. Yeah, and that's that's uh, significant because as we uh, think we reported a couple of episodes back too, um, Tiger Airways has now started operating on the Melbourne-Sydney route. Uh, of course, they operate straight out of Tullamarine where they're based. So they would be, they're a low-cost carrier and w- would be competing more directly with Jetstar, obviously. So um, yeah, it's, they, yeah, they probably forced Jetstar's hand there. They, they really needed to start operating uh, out of Tullamarine. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, I don't want to travel all the way down there to Avalon. But uh, to be honest with you, you know, there's, I don't think there'd be... Okay, it's further to go, but you, you're travelling down the Geelong Freeway. It's it's a pretty good run down there most of the time, and it's it really if you look at all the time constraints that you've got on you when you get to Tullamarine, uh, you know, negotiating in the car park and paying those ridiculously huge car parking fees, uh, you know, and getting through the much larger crowds and check-in areas at Tullamarine, uh, as opposed to perhaps travelling a little further, but having a probably a much more quiet and and, and uh, what will we say uh, efficient experience down there at the uh, significantly smaller setup at Avalon. Is the, overall, it probably isn't that much difference in it time-wise. Well, especially not if you're already um, in the western areas of Melbourne. That does make it a little easier. And especially if you're in Geelong, because, hey, it's a lot closer to you. But, yeah, look, it's it's going to be um, – Tiger's definitely upping that. Have you, have you noticed that Jetstar are on the defensive here because first Tiger start flying Melbourne to Sydney from Tulla, and so, whoops, better put Jetstar on there. And then – uh, v Australia bids for a whole lot of seats on the uh, Australia to Fiji route and next thing you know Jetstar is suddenly bidding for them they're, they're, they're definitely being very reactive at the moment they're running to catch up with what everyone's doing V Australia going into Asia well yeah Jetstar is already going into there but uh, V Australia are also looking to go to South Africa so Qantas have got a lot of competition happening on a lot of their prime routes it wasn't just the Pacific area it's happening everywhere and the only way they can compete is by putting Jetstar on there and they're, they're having to do it they Everyone else is forcing the issue. Sometimes I wonder, like, you know, there's been a lot of talk around, of course, you know, the, the world economy has been on a downer for the last year or two. Sometimes I wonder in that environment, would it be better to be reactive rather than proactive, um, you know, in, in these sort of market conditions? I mean, I'm no businessman, but I wonder if a more conservative approach at the moment you know, might be a better option. You know, they can look at what their competitors are doing and do a bit of market research. Is that working for, you know, Airline X and, and Airline Y? Um, you know, is that working for them? Okay, now we can throw our brand in there. And they know if they offer a decent 
decent service and decent prices, they're going to put backsides on seats. Um, you know, I wonder if that's what they're doing. Are they are they being reactive? for a reason or is it just that they've been blindsided by the competition which up until now they haven't had a lot of yeah it's hard to tell because yeah if, if you're the one leading the way then you could go into something that totally blows up in your face but uh if you let others lead and you follow yeah it's a little safer but you may miss out on that uh, innovation. It's it's a really hard game to play. One of the points here that Alan Joyce makes, he's talking about the Japanese routes, and he's saying that Japanese routes stood to lose as much as $100 million a year and would, would have had to have been abandoned by Qantas Mainline. Yeah. I've been for Jetstar coming on the scene and, uh, you know, operating on those flights, that, you know, with their with their different cost structure and, and different uh, seat price. So that's a reasonable point too. It's, it's a real sort of fine line that they're running there at Qantas, and, you know, it wouldn't be good... I'm sure that the Qantas brand is not going to disappear. Obviously, it's not going to. But I, if I was working at Qantas, of course, that's got to be a concern. Yeah. It's going to happen to our job. Are we all going to be shipped off and made redundant and have to you know, reapply for our jobs at, at third-party contractors and all this sort of thing? So, you know, I can mm. angst there. I'm, I'm, I'm probably happy that, you know, although I'd love to work in the airline, so yeah, probably <laughs> I don't have that pressure on me. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, uh, there's a lot of pressure in the airlines, as you're saying. The people haven't got as much money, and uh, for for the uh, Qantas Jetstar crowd, Tigers nipping at their heels. Tigers now looking at moving to Avalon. They're upping their Melbourne-Sydney services. They're uh, going to start introducing Melbourne to Brisbane and Adelaide to Brisbane. So they're, they're really on the on the prowl to <coughs> you know, use the pun. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, but you've got Tiger nipping at your heels. You've got V Australia leading the way with a ritzy new service. It's full on. Yeah, but uh, just before we go into our weekly Tiger Airways rant, Grant... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other example here, which is uh, probably an even better example in Japan, is of course New Zealand, where Qantas was operating domestically across there. Well, they've been replaced by Jetstar. Yep, it is the Jetstarization, as as was used the phrase. But uh, you know, uh, Alan Joyce uh, is suggesting one thing, but the actions of the company as a whole would probably suggest something else. The difference, I guess, too, is that of course Alan Joyce has only been in the seat for twelve months, and a lot of these decisions probably were made prior to him arriving in in the top job. Yep. It's, it takes about 12 months to get into the groove of it and at that, that level. So I think we'll be seeing some new decisions and directions coming out soon that will be all his. Most of the things that have been coming out from Joyce have been shutting down uh, and or correcting from Dixon in terms of merging with BA or uh, out, um, outsourcing offshoring, engineering, selling the uh, frequent flyer plan. All these things have been shut down, all those plans. They're not happening. So, yeah, it's. I think it's only just now that we're going to start seeing exactly what uh, Joyce does as a as a ceo yes now grant of course did we mention tiger airways we ought to move on to our weekly tiger airways rant my god my goodness wrong sound effect again anyway just talking there about uh, tiger airways and they've they've actually been in the news a lot so let's just expand on a few of the stories that we did find there um grant let's give some detail on uh, what i was just talking about before yeah what about this first one we found at heraldsun.com.au tiger's eyes on avalon so they're looking at uh, what we were just talking about uh, jetstar operating out of uh, Tullamarine to uh, perhaps in in some way take on tiger airways now tiger airways is looking at moving down to avalon to take star down there so that's that's an interesting move in itself indeed and uh, Lindsay Fox, the owner of the uh, logistics transportation magnate here in Australia and the owner of Avalon, will be laughing all the way to the bank. Uh, yes, uh, poor old Lindsay Fox. He's obviously uh, struggling for a dollar these days. <clears throat> anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, yes. There's only uh, another 20 new trucks a day. Yeah. <laughs> 
This article appeared as we said in the heraldsun.com.au on October 28th by Felicity Williams. Troubled Tiger Airways is believed to be in advanced talks with Lindsay Fox's Linfox Corporation about moving operations from uh, Melbourne Airport down to Avalon. Industry sources said the budget airline was discussing the relocation of its business to Mr Fox's Avalon Airport. Like many of its peers around the world, uh, Singapore Airlines controlled Tiger is believed to be under extreme financial pressure because of the uncertain global economy and fluctuating oil prices. A spokesman for the airline, Vanessa Regan said that Tiger was, quote-unquote, in continual discussions with all airports about its growth strategy. There'd be no doubt at all that uh, they'd be welcoming Tiger Airways or any other airline with open arms, though I don't think they've made much of a secret about the idea that they'd love to make Avalon Melbourne's number two airport, and it really is, to my way of thinking, for reasons I said earlier, a pretty logical choice. Yeah, no, it's it's not a bad choice for them, but uh, it's interesting that they're spinning this as a negative, oh, they're in trouble, they've got to reduce their costs and all that, as opposed to what we've been saying, which is, well, Tiger's based out of Melbourne, and now maybe they're looking at uh, going against Jetstar and Jetstar's so-called home turf of Avalon. So we're looking at it as a um, a predatory move, and the Herald Sun is reporting it as a uh, desperation get out of Melbourne because it's too damned expensive to be at Tuller kind of move. Yeah, it's interesting, of course, as we've said many times before, Tiger Airways have only got seven aircraft. They, uh, at the moment, uh, surely are not that big a threat to the, um, you know, the, the bigger carriers. I mean, uh, I don't know what Jetstar's fleet size would be, but it, I'm sure it's a hell of a lot more than seven aircraft. Yeah, at least 12. <laughs> <laughs> at least eight, yeah, anyway. <laughs> no, Jetstar, cracking Grant, well, they have probably... I know, I know. What, me staring? Yeah. Of course, the Tiger Airways, as we mentioned earlier, is um, expanding its operations, which is a move that I, for many reasons I've said in earlier episodes, find a questionable strategy when they, they just, I don't believe they can, they can support... So such expanded operations. However, they've launched an, an Adelaide-Brisbane service and uh, what else? A Melbourne-Brisbane service. Correct. Uh, gee whiz, uh, we, we, we probably just like to apologise to our friends in Brisbane for inviting <laughs> <laughs> the service. Yes, the uh, GoCat call sign will be heard more in uh, the Brisbane area because typically Tiger only went up to uh, Gold Coast. But now with the Melbourne-Brisbane and Adelaide-Brisbane, the uh, GoCat will be called coming into Brisbane. By the way, GoCat is the name of a cat food here in Australia. Ah, uh, yes. You remember the GoCat commercials from the 70s, Grant? Always very entertaining. Come on, I wasn't living here then. I was in New Zealand, mate. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they probably didn't have TV over there. Anyway, <clears throat> I make jokes about New Zealanders, Grant. I tried that once and got in a big trouble. Yeah, Mike's going to have words with you, mate. Sorry, Mike. It was just a joke, brother. Just keep digging, dude. Just keep digging. Anyway, <laughs> continuing... <laughs> It says here that Tiger Airways launched the Melbourne-Brisbane service on November 5 with an $88 launch fare on flights that operated up to three times daily. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, if they can manage to uh, stump up three flights daily in $88, well, yeah, and probably another $88 in fees on top of that. Like, oh, my goodness, you wanted to take a bag on with you? you know, well, that's going to cost you another 20 bucks a sector. Oh, you wanted to share with uh, armrests? Oh. You, you wanted a seat as well? Good Lord, well, that'll cost you another 50 bucks. <laughs> oh, don't go down that standing room only path. We've been... Yeah. Oh. Tiger Airways Managing Director Shelley Roberts has said here that 2010 is set to be another big year for Tiger Airways as our low fare revolution will now be roaring into Brisbane and uh, in the year of the Tiger we'll, virt- we'll virtually have Australia covered as we continue to grow. Gee whiz, Grant, maybe that means they're going to have eight aircraft by the end of next year. I think they're working on it. Anyway, we love to pick on Tiger Airways. We have to pick on some, some airline and, uh, you know... Uh, you know, if anybody is listening from Tiger Airways, I'm still waiting for your customer service to ring me back from the complaint I lodged last November. Boy, there's nothing quite like a Dutchman to carry a grudge. Yes, my father would be proud. Well, given that you're in a bit of a rant kind of mood, I guess we should move on to the next item, which is uh, your next rant about Melbourne Airport's advertising campaign. 
as I was driving my train around the suburbs of Melbourne recently, and as I was pulling out of the Clifton Hill station, I happened to notice a uh, big advertising billboard, which always has all sorts of different... Actually, usually has quite a lot of airline uh, ads on it, which is why my eyes usually sort of wander across there when perhaps they probably ought to be looking at signals or something, but that's, you know, just an operational issue. Anyway, <laughs> that billboard... Anyway, I digress. Oh, God. <laughs> That billboard at the moment is hosting a uh, very large commercial for Melbourne Airport, and it's advertising Melbourne Airport's website. Now, my question is, why? Why does Melbourne Airport need to advertise at all? You know, it's saying, choose Melbourne Airport. Well, hello, I don't have a choice. The airline has done the choosing for me. And in which case, why on earth do we need to put up rather expensive billboards all over this city telling people to come to the airport? You know, what I'm getting at here, Grant, is uh, if I'm flying Airline X and it flies out of Airport Y, then Airport Y is where I am going. So you don't really, really get a choice in that. Now, the things that really annoy me about this is that Melbourne Airport is an extremely expensive place to go. It costs a fortune to park your car there. It costs a fortune to buy anything in there because the rents are so high. They charge huge landing fees to airlines or anybody else who, uh, you know, dares touch the ground at Melbourne Airport. So if they've got enough money to be spending on uh, hugely expensive advertising campaigns like this, well, surely... I just find it completely unnecessary. Maybe they could instead invest that money in upgrading the airport at the least or instead drop some of the fees and waste <laughs> your money. I mean, you know, if, they want to adver- if they're advertising their airport, they should be doing that to airline executives, not to people that don't have a choice but to go there anyway. I'll tell you a couple of other things, incidentally, that annoy me about that advertising campaign. Point one is, when I got home, what's the first thing I did, Grant? I went to their bloody website. <laughs> it worked. And if they're going to advertise, well, you know, they could advertise on this show. True, true. They might get a little bit more uh, competitive rates. Yes. You know, we wouldn't mind, you know, <laughs> we, we don't charge much and, you know, free parking, you know, that costs, you know, there's there's a fortune already. In it. <laughs> no, mate. I, <laughs> well, I know I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As the phrase goes, rant on, Steve. Yeah. Rant on. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, that just kind of, you know, got my goat. I mean, gee, what a, what a, what a spectacular waste of money. Well, maybe it's, not. Maybe not. Maybe, like, okay, let's... It's like Australia Post advertising. If you want to mail a letter, you've got to use them, so why do they need to advertise? It's the, uh, it's unless, unless you use a courier or an online service or et cetera. I mean, look, there's... this. I know, it's, it's. I'm looking at it going, okay, this is mad. Yeah, we don't have a lot of options, but, uh, okay, yeah. The um, If you're in the Melbourne area, you've got two airports you can use to get anywhere, one being Melbourne Tullamarine, which is doing this advertising, and the other is Avalon. Avalon really, at the moment, only has... Uh, has Jetstar going out of it, and they're not always at brilliant times for those of us who want to get somewhere for most of the day. So maybe they're starting to look ahead and see, okay, we're starting to get some competition from uh, Avalon. We should start hitting that off now. And the other part is maybe what they're doing is similar to what Dunedin Airport was doing. Uh, this is something I learned about way back when I was up in Sydney uh, doing the uh, the gathering, the tweet up with Shashank. What Dunedin's doing is they're making themselves a one-stop shop to actually go and book your flights. Rather than going direct to the airlines or anything like that, you go, hey, I want to stage out of this airport. Where can I go? Or I want to go here from from my airport. Which airline should I use? And they've set up a portal where you can book your tickets and do everything all from the airport's website. And I do notice here on the Melbourne airport website, they're saying, you know, check out the latest flight specials and uh, you know, car park calculators and things like that. And yeah, look, from an advertising perspective, it's a little odd. But um, I do note that uh, I use this site quite a bit when I'm trying to find out which airlines are coming in and, and w- when I have to leave to pick up a friend and so on. But, uh, yeah, it, there may be more to this than just, you know, you've got nowhere else to go, but we're still going to advertise. 
I'll tell you the coolest thing about the Melbourne Airport website is the flight tracker they have on there. Yep. Although, uh, as I was talking to our friend uh, Dan Webb from the Airplane Geeks on a uh, Skype chat just the other day, and he uh, sent me a link to the one they have over there at uh, Skipole Airport. You want to see the flight tracker they've got there? It's sensational. Leaves Melbourne for dead. So, hello, Melbourne Airport people. Go and have a look at uh, Skipole's uh, website and get that flight tracker for Melbourne. That'd be sensational. Cool. That would impress our friends at Melbourne Centre. There you go. We we have better better aircraft information than they do on their radar. <laughs> and speaking of Dan, he sent us an email this this week, pointing us to some news from uh, Japan Airlines JL. And you know, he says here, Grant, I'm not sure if you guys care about this, but I saw this at the NBTA this year. Pretty nice. Well, Dan, we always care about things that you send us. Dan, he's such a nice boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is good to care about Dan stuff. Yeah, especially when there's more photos of him with uh, cute stewardesses. But Anyhow, Anyhow, what was up with the JAL seats? Uh, it's uh, saying here that uh, JAL is uh, introducing new premium economy service on the Tokyo to Sydney route. And uh, Dan's biggest thing is seat pitch. Dan's obsessed with uh, airline seats. Uh, it says here that Japan Airlines will introduce a premium economy service on the uh, Narita to Sydney route starting from December the 1st. It's a uh, once-daily flight. Uh, it says here it's also equipped with the airline's JAL shell flat seat in executive class on their mm-hmm. 7200ER aircraft. So, uh, yeah, there's a pretty nifty picture here. Of, uh, it's actually a media release from JL, so I, I don't know uh, how our listeners would, would be able to access it. Um, just send a, just go to Dan's blog, thingsinthesky.com. It's, uh, yeah, it's his website there. I'm sure he's probably got a link to it to the article there. But, yeah, some, pre- some pretty uh, flash-looking seats there, I tell you. They're, they're sort of a – yeah, they do they do look like a shell there. They're quite slim line, but, um, yeah, pretty comfy-looking things. and looks like they recline back a fair way, so, yeah, that would be uh, – mm. Uh, pretty flash. So, yeah, Dan, we just thought we should mention that one, and thanks very much for sending that, mate. And, you know, anything else you'd like to send us, we always appreciate it, along with anything that any of our listeners would like to send us. Anyway, so there you go, Dan. I even printed it out for you. Okay, Grant, and as we normally round out uh, most of our uh, news episodes lately, uh, we're going to finish off with a, a couple of reports from the world of defence. The uh, first one we're going to talk about here is the uh, final F-111 exiting its uh, deep maintenance up there at the uh, Boeing Defence Australia facility in uh, at Amberley Air Base in Queensland. That's right. Uh, the F-111s is part of their phasing out and getting rid of them. They're uh, winding up the deep maintenance they do on them. The last one has gone through it and uh, they'll be shutting down that whole system now. Um, so by the next time this one's ready to come into deep maintenance, it'll be gone. So no more need for it. So it says here that the uh, F-111C serial number 88-135 was delivered back into service for the final time at a November 4 ceremony attended by the RAAF and Boeing officials. Yeah, initially serviced by RAF personnel, um, Boeing took over the deep maintenance in 2001 as a um, part of the uh, Air Force's outsourcing concept. And uh, they've done over 300 deeper, deeper maintenance services on uh, 28 F-111Cs and 15 F-111Gs since 1974. So that's a lot of deep maintenance. Just reading from this article on Australian Aviation, Grant, uh, there's a quote here from John Duddy, who's the Vice President and Managing Director of uh, Boeing Defence Australia. He's saying that, uh, the, talking about obviously the day they delivered the aircraft back, he's saying, he's quoted here as saying, uh, today is exceptionally historic because we are delivering A8135 from the same hangar, number 278, where deeper maintenance work on the F-111 first began 35 years ago. Uh, he says, we take pause to honour and recognise every RAAF service person and Boeing employee who has contributed towards maintaining 
maintaining this platform and uh, saying because of you, the F-111 today remains the fastest and longest ranging combat aircraft in the Asia-Pacific region. Yeah, it'd be a shame to see it go. It's it's, it's hard to believe, Grant, that those aircraft are, are so old already. In some in some respects, it seems like they've been around forever. Other respects, <laughs> you know, even when you look at them now, they are still a sensational and modern-looking machine. Oh, yeah, they're very, very powerful. Um, it's always great fun hanging around them. They're noisy as, and, uh, you know, they, they have a bit of hassles with uptime. I mean, there was the classic story out of Avalon that time of they had the two F-111s there, and the uh, crew were getting ready to do their display many years ago. They jumped in the primary and were getting it ready, and it had a problem. So they jumped in the secondary, and they were getting it ready, and it had a problem. And by then, the ground crew had fixed the problem in the primary, so they jumped back in the primary and completed the power-up, and off she went pretty pretty full-on. Yep, and... Uh you know, like like I've said before, uh, we're going to wonder how every Australian, major Australian air show is going to finish when we don't have the dump and burn routine going anymore. I know, we're going to miss the pig. Probably one more thing too, Grant, I should mention here, uh, just uh, looking at that quote there from John Duddy where he's talking about uh, honouring the work of Australian defence uh, personnel. Uh, actually, just as a side note, we're actually recording this on uh, the 11th day of the 11th month. So, uh, yeah, we should just like to acknowledge that, of course, it is Remembrance Day here in Australia and, uh, you know, Grant and I have uh, liked to express our deep respect for all our service personnel, past and present, and uh, we really do we really do uh, appreciate the work that you guys do and Although Grant and I were not able to serve in the uh, Defence Force, so Grant comes from a Defence family, an Anzac family, I guess, Grant, don't you? And um, yep. Yeah, so we would just like to pay our respects to uh, all Australia and New Zealand and, and really all Defence personnel around the world uh, from wherever you might be listening. Uh, it's, a, it's a mighty job that you do and an incredibly important job, and uh, we certainly uh, appreciate the freedoms that we have in this country as a result of all the actions that uh, those uh, servicemen and women have undertaken over the years. So, uh, yeah, it's just uh, by coincidence uh, that it is uh, the 11th day the 11th month so uh, i think it's appropriate that we mention that mate yeah no i think that's right and uh yeah while i may not always agree with the political reasons why uh people are uh in being stationed in various locations uh you got to respect the fact that they're doing it and uh yeah support them as much as possible um if you don't agree with why they're there go and yell at a politician but support your military Absolutely. One more article here, Grant, uh, talking about defence and talking about the Boeing Wedgetail program. Uh, they've been testing their uh, countermeasures package on board that aircraft. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, David uh, Vanderhoof pointed us to an article and we found another one in Australian Aviation. And uh, uh, you may remember a few episodes back we were talking about how uh, they were going, Boeing were going to fly the Wedgetail around and check its uh, countermeasures systems. And we were joking about wanting to get video up on YouTube and get photos. Well, here's a photo I'm looking at right now on the Australian Aviation article. It's uh, a photo taken from in front of the Wedgetail 737, looking back at it as it's popped its flares. So big chunks of burning material heading down and a nice big cloud behind it. Yeah, it says Boeing uh, says here that it's successfully completed the testing of the countermeasures dispenser system, or CMDS, for the RAF's uh, AWACS project. The tests were conducted in September and October off the coast of Seattle and comprised of 19 flights and the dispensing of more than 500 chaff and flare packages from the aircraft. The flight tests were conducted at varying speeds and configurations, including representative approach and takeoff phases of flight with undercarriage and flaps down, uh, perhaps the most critical phase of flight and one in which the aircraft may be under most threat if deployed to a forward operating base. So, uh, yeah, pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, no, so, indeed. Uh, those aircraft, they can't be too far away from coming into service now. 
Uh, Let me see here. Further down the article, it says the first two of six wedge tails are due to be handed over to the RAAF at a ceremony at RAAF Williamtown on November 24. So there you go. Actually, it's only a couple of weeks away. Yeah. The remaining four will be delivered in 2010 with uh, with integrated electronic warfare suite cleared for use. Uh, Cool. That's going to make the next few air shows pretty impressive, mate. Oh, yeah. No, I remember when it came through Avalon uh, a couple of air shows back, we were out on the on the tarmac working away and the word came out that uh, over the ground frequency that the, the toaster was going to be doing a flyby and I'm looking up at the clouds going, hmm, won't get much of a flyby. It's got a fair whack of cloud here. And sure enough, there was a nice low-level cloud around 500 foot and uh, they did a flyby at around 450 feet. Uh, <laughs> so you you basically saw bits of 737 poking through the <laughs> through everything and a and a bit of a flashby. It was during one of the trade days. It was around the Thursday. They did the flyby. Then they um then they circled around and landed and came in. But it was rather amusing. You basically seeing the belly, the engine pods, and occasionally a little bit of the side. <laughs> yeah, well, everything else was probably classified, mate. They couldn't they couldn't show it. They probably all. Oh, that was why they had the cloud. Okay. Just you know, you got to be thinking of these things. Yeah, I totally missed that one. All righty, Grant. Uh, can you hear something in the background? Hang on. Oh, that sounds like the postman. Ah. Oh, postman Pat bringing the mail. Listener mail, listener mail. We got some fantastic listener mail this week, and now we, uh, we should mention here that our email address is plancrazydownunder at gmail.com. This one arrived in the inbox a couple of uh, days ago, um, and it's it's uh, from Don Rucker, who's over in the uh, United States. He says, here, greetings from the US. My name is Don Rucker. I just wanted to send you a quick note of encouragement and congratulations on an excellent series of podcasts. Obviously, sir, you're a man of excellent taste. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. It's, it's, it's obvious. It's obvious. Yeah. <laughs> So it is here, my 14-year-old son and I are building a, and I'm probably going to get this name wrong, but I'll give it a whirl. It says here, a Peton, Peton pole? Penton pole. Penton pole. Yeah. Interesting name. The goals are for him to complete the plane, earn his private pilot's license, and solo his Pete from Louisiana to Oshkosh when he is 17. A, uh, a fantastic goalie. Yeah. We like to listen to aviation podcasts while we build, and we recently came across your podcast. Very well done. And uh, he's, uh, he says here, too, if you're wondering what a Peton... What's that word again, Grant? A Peton pole. Well, yeah, it's a it's a Peton pole. Um, and I'm doing a quick Google search while I find a few. Um, you're actually found on uh, Wikipedia, of all places. But actually, he's pointing to his son's website here, folks. And if you want to have a look at the project that they're undertaking there and uh, what a fascinating-looking aircraft this is, very vintage-looking machine. Yeah, it's like a parasol um, a parasol wing, one one wing mounted above the fuselage. It's a, at first glance, it looks like a uh, biplane that somebody's taken off the bottom wing. Yeah, Um I reckon that thing would be a that'd be a fantastic machine to fly. Uh, his son's website, if you want to have a look at it, folks, is www.firstwings.net. It's uh, spelt the first as in F I R S T wings. Dot net. Um, yeah, go and have a look at that and uh, support them what they're doing. I'm sure they, they seem quite happy for uh, everybody to uh, you know keep track of the project as it goes along. Uh, Don and his son are based in uh, Shreveport in Louisiana, and uh, actually that as I actually wrote back to Don and said that's quite interesting because that's not 
a huge distance away from where I lived in the United States, uh, living up there in central Arkansas. And in fact, I did actually one of my IFR NABEXs uh, down there to Shreveport. And obviously, that's uh, obviously as uh, I was living with an Air Force family, we've actually I've actually been fortunate enough to be on the or to have spent some time in the local Air Force base there back in the 80s, and that is uh, Barksdale Air Force Base, which I think at the time had B-52s there. Don, maybe if you can just let me know. I'm pretty sure it was a B-52 base. You can tell it's a B-52 base because when you're flying overhead, it's like enormous runways, mm. humongous, like four times wider than you think they need to be and two million times longer. Yeah, but uh, Shreveport's a nice place, Shreveport. In fact, uh, it's, it's I can't remember what the industrial... Uh, what the major industry is down there, but I do know that a, a lot of people from the area that I lived in the States um, used to head down to Shreveport uh, in search of work. And uh, yeah, so uh, fantastic to hear from you, Don. Thanks very much for uh, writing in and letting us know about that. And we'd, we'd uh, certainly like to uh, keep track on the uh, firstwings.net website there. And, and hopefully you can uh, keep uh, the listeners here updated on your progress. That, that'd be fascinating to, uh, to keep track of. And actually, I'm sure Jack, Dave and Jeb over there at Uncontrolled Airspace would be pretty fascinated to uh, have a look at that. So I might actually uh, pass that link on to uh, to Jack and uh, see if he might like to publicise it as well. Yeah, no, definitely. And, uh, I mean, you know, they've, they've uh, got a Don, – Don raises a really good point here, which is, uh, you know, like uh, the cool thing about the Piet is it demonstrates flying can be affordable and enjoyed by all. If GA is to stay strong, we need a large new generation of pilots. And, uh, yeah, he reckons the Piet's really, uh, really cool and can be uh, built for less than US 10,000 and is a ball to fly. So this is pretty awesome stuff. I, lo- I love it when people build aircraft and go for it. I mean, I'm all thumbs when it comes to building things. So uh, all my – yeah, you know, all respect to you guys. But uh, one last bit about this, and in, in Don's final uh, comment to us, he points out that uh, they first heard about a podcast from listening to the Pilot's Flight Podlog. So, woohoo! Thanks to Will and Dave for mentioning us, and uh, wow, we from, from them we got a listener. Yay! Yep, and we should mention Don's son there, whose name is Peyton. So, good day, Peyton, and uh, continued success, uh, Peyton, with your uh, journey in aviation. It's great to see that you're getting into it at such a young age, and yep. I'm, I'm sure that uh, you'll have a, if you choose aviation as a career, you've uh, you've certainly got off to a, a fantastic start doing what you're doing. You, you'll certainly have a great appreciation for the principles of flight from building an aircraft from scratch. What better grounding could you have than uh, than learning basic principles of flight and how an aircraft works? There's there's no better way than to build one yourself. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty happy. I've got my son uh, totally hooked on aviation. He's 11 years old, going 12 early next year. And uh, I've had him, he's had a couple of hours flying a 737 simulator. He's been in the back of a of a, uh, war, a warrior in a four-ship element formation flight. He uh, taxied around in an old Piper Pacer. And just the other weekend, he was in the back of a, the Yak-52 to go do some aerobatics. So, yeah, yeah he's right. totally hooked. Right. Oh, and he was on the DC-3. Yeah. Let's play the engine noise from that yeah, quickly, shall we? Uh, oh, please, please. <sighs> there you yeah. go, folks. That's a real aircraft. It's a tail dragger and it's a radial. <laughs> Uh, just before we finish with uh, Don too, Don, uh, we'd just like to say how much we appreciate it. Don actually uh, sent us a, a very generous donation. Uh, thanks very much, Don. We, we sincerely appreciate that. Really do. Thanks so much. Yeah, we, we love every, every donation we can get. It's, it's great. Um, every little bit counts, gang. 
And that's everything we have for you on this week's episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks very much for listening. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. Our sound effects and music every week come to you from soundsnap.com. Our theme music track that we use every week is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. And actually, uh, just about every other music track we use on Playing Crazy Down Under also comes from Brian Simpson. He's uh, one of our favourites. You can find uh, show notes with links to all our source articles on our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. That's right. You can visit our fan page on Facebook. You can even find find us uh, our youtube channel on well where else but youtube and you can even find us on twitter as pcdu you can find steve online as steve visher on twitter or one word and you can find him on facebook and also via his blog www.ozflyer.com and you can find grant online as falcon124 on twitter and via his blog blog.flymefriendly.com and if that's not information overload for you folks i don't know what is so until next week when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts just remember this it's what's down under that counts folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. This is going to be the episode that, that took 10 years to make. Do you get that feeling? Yeah, I get that feeling. My name's Steve Fisher, and I'll be your captain for the... What? <laughs> I've been practicing this all <laughs> I do have a soundbite. Oh, where did you go? Let's take a pause. Are you running around in the studio again? Yes. Over there in Cranbourne at the uh, PCDU East studio, we discovered that Steve has so much space, he can run around and around the computer and uh, keep himself fit while recording. <laughs> Fitness and Steve, two mutually exclusive terms. <laughs> i got to turn my fan on before I die in here. Hang on. I'm going to turn it to low, though. <sighs> oh, baby, yeah. Hang on, I can't even find the article, is it? You know... Um, uh, um, 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 yeah, the, uh, and, uh, um, you know, you know, uh, you know, um, but, um, there's, um, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, yeah, the, um, they, um, you know, um, um, you know, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, you know, you know, you know, uh, I'll probably get it that bit out. Um, um, you know, you know, you know, you know. Uh, um, uh, and uh, uh, where are we going to go with that? Today is hysteric. Hysteric. <laughs> Hysterically. Is <laughs> <laughs> a uh, um, plane crazy down under Grant. Dot com. <laughs>